This is Brian here with your men's basketball update. Since our last recording, Idaho's men have played four games, going two and two, bringing our season record to two and four. Those four games were first versus Bethesda College in Moscow, a game we won 87 to 59. Bethesda College being an NCCAA team, which is a smaller classification than an NAIA school. Our next game, as part of the Vandal Hoops Holiday Showcase in Boise, we lost to the NAIA Northwest Nazarene, 77 to 73. The next night in Boise, again, as part of the Vandal Hoops Holiday Showcase, we lost to UC Santa Barbara, a Big West school, who did receive some first place votes in the coaches' preseason Big West poll. We lost to them 66 to 55. Then back in Moscow, we played West Coast Baptist, another NCCAA team, who we beat 98 to 44. Overall on the season, our leading scorer so far has been freshman Cameron Tyson, who's averaging 17 points per game on 10 shots total per game, including 4.3 made threes per game. Trayvon Allen's our second scorer at 13.3 points a game. Our leading rebounder is Markel Frazier, who's grabbing 7.3 rebounds a game in the games he's played. We'll get to that later, in addition to 8.7 points per game. And our second leading re- leading rebounder is Scott Blakeney, sophomore, who was on the team last year but didn't play very much. He's averaging 6.2 rebounds in addition to 10.6 points per game. Now, in the season preview Chris Martin and I recorded, one of the topics we addressed was growing pains. With a team like ours, which if you're new to the podcast, our entire men's basketball team has two upperclassmen total. They're both juniors. Markel Frazier and Trayvon Allen. Trayvon Allen is the only returning player from last year's team that finished third in the Big Sky. Everyone else is a freshman or sophomore, and the sophomores who were returning from the year before did not play very much at all. So as expected, our team is showing some growing pains, and I want to distinguish between growing pains and problems. Growing pains aren't fun to work through, They do help a team like ours lose games that we probably should win talent-wise. But I think of growing pains as a necessary part of learning. The fact that a growing pain is taking place is not itself a problem. It is just part of maturing as a player and as a person. A lot of it has to do with consistency. A lot of it has to do with the players understanding their roles. And also a lot of it has to do with the coaches seeing whether the positional battles that players win in practice, whether that performance translates to an actual game. All of that takes time. And when players are younger, as in freshmen and sophomores, and when players don't have a body of evidence in live game action at the Division I level, the coaches are engaging in some sort of guesswork, which is why growing pains take place. They aren't a fault of the coaching staff. They aren't a fault of the players. They are a requirement for improvement. Problems are different. Problems are not just are not really part of the learning process. Problems are when pieces don't fit together in a way that they systemically won't. Problems are when potential is not actualized and we see regression. Our men's team has shown a mix of growing pains and problems. The first growing pain we're seeing as a whole is just team consistency. We've played six games so far. I only care about the four losses, not because they're losses, but because the wins so far 
are against NCCAA teams that we truly should not care. We simply outclass them as athletes, and that's what we've done when they step on the floor. But in the four games that we should pay attention to, we have led at the half against every team. Against UC Irvine, we led at halftime 34 to 30. Against Nickel State, we led 40 to 39. We shouldn't have to care about Northwest Nazarene, but we lost, so we do. Against Northwest Nazarene, we led 33 to 27. And against UCSB, we led 36 to 32. Now, we're not blowing teams out in the first half, but for a team that has a 2-4 and four record, we are showing that talent-wise, we belong with these teams that are beating us. Our problem is translating that performance into a full basketball game. In our four losses, we have been outscored by around 13 points to 12 points per game, depending on if you choose to count the Northwest Nazarene loss because they're a non-Division One team. And the way that's looked is against UC Irvine, the best team we've played so far this year, team we led by four at half. We were outscored by 22 in the second half. Against Nickel State, team we led by one against. We were outscored by four in the second half. Now, outscoring a team by one, then being outscored by four, what that translates to is the teams are just pretty even. But it fits our pattern of we lead at half, we lose in the second half. Against Northwest Nazarene, we led by six at halftime, 33-27. And then we're outscored by 10 in the second half. And against UC Santa Barbara, we led 36-32 at halftime. Then we're outscored by 15, 34-19 in the second half. Part of why I consider this growing pains, this second half performance, is there isn't a single issue that we can pin as to why we are being outscored or outplayed in the second half when we do fine in the first half. Against UC Irvine, and against Northwest Nazarene, the teams just shot incredibly well against us the second half. UC Irvine also scored a ton of second half points. But like against Northwest Nazarene, you know, in the second half, they shot 67% from the field overall, including 75% from three, hitting six out of eight threes. And we gave up a total of 50 points. Well, that sounds like just pretty awful defense. But then against UC Santa Barbara, a team that is significantly better the Northwest Nazarene, we weren't radically outscored. The problem wasn't being radically outscored in the second half. They made a total of one three-point shot in the second half. The problem was they destroyed us in the paint, scoring 38 points in the paint, including 17 second-chance points. The fact that we have a scatter shot of reasons why we're not performing in the second half, that the way I read that right now is mostly that we have guys who aren't consistent the way they need to be. But within that, there are some problems that Coach Berlin is going to have to try to figure out to work how to work through this year, or they're problems that'll be they'll have to be addressed via recruitment. Uh, the first problem is our depth at the center position and at the forward positions. Our team has a total of two wings who are not guards. We have a total of two centers. Markel Frazier went down and missed a couple games, which means we suddenly only have one wing. Which means when that wing, Jared Rodriguez, a freshman, who is struggling with some consistency issues too, when he comes out of the game, we have no choice but to have a four-guard lineup. Now, a four-guard lineup sounds like fun on paper, 
And in a lot of ways, it can be, provided that certain assumptions that people have about what a guard heavy lineup should be able to do are actually there. One of the assumptions of a guard heavy lineup is that the roster is full of people who can shoot the ball and spread the floor. And if the floor is being spread, lanes should be open for penetration. It's a virtuous cycle, whereas we shoot more and make more, we're able to penetrate more and get easier shots inside or penetrate and get easier, more open looks outside. And our team on paper might look like we're okay shooting threes, but it's buttressed really on one player. Cameron Tyson is shooting around 50% on threes while shooting about in between seven and eight threes per game. No one else on the roster is shooting. Let me clarify that. No one on the roster playing regular minutes against non-NCCAA teams is shooting threes above 28%. And when we play a four-guard lineup like we've had to, and only one guy can shoot, it's actually hard to outscore the other team, and it is almost impossible to out-rebound the other team. The way our three-point shooting so far has looked is, even though Trayvon Allen, our second-leading scorer, averaging 13.3 points a game, he, he's picked up his play in the last couple games that we've had, the games that I care about. I'm not counting the West Coast Baptist game to move his scoring back up to you know 13 a game. He's shooting 22% from threes, and he's he's shooting about four threes a game. Gino West is, has been starting as our point guard, or you can call him nominal point guard because we're playing more of a point guard by committee. He's shooting 28% on threes. Jared Rodriguez, a wing who has started every game for us and is averaging just under 10 points a game, he's shooting 28% on threes. Really, no one on our team right now but Cameron Tyson can shoot threes in a way that's reliable. And because of our depth issue, that's how you can lose to teams like Northwest Nazarene and UCSB, even though you have strong first halves. Now, Markel Frazier did come back and play off the bench against West Coast Baptist. And on the season, Markel Frazier has been solid, averaging, like I said, almost nine points a game and seven rebounds a game, while also being one of our better defenders. But with how limited we are, with what we can do with our wings, our non-guard wings, which we can understand as wings who are 6'4 or taller, or at least they play like they're 6'4 or taller. Because we only have two of those guys total, and one was down, we had, Verlin had really no options other than to go small. And when a team goes small, they've got to be able to shoot. And in those games, we simply did not shoot. Now, in spite of that frustration and the, that real problem of we're guard heavy, but only one guard is shooting. There are some ways that I think we can remedy that. The big problem for me right now is the shot distribution. Cameron Tyson, who's averaging 17 a game, is not leading our team in shot attempts. Now, it's, it's not hard to explain why Cameron Tyson does not have an off-the-dribble game, which is to say he is a shot maker, but he is not a shot creator at this point in his career. He gets open looks, one, uh, if team goes zone and we swing the ball and the movement of the defense just leaves someone open, that's one of the ways he gets he gets open looks. He can get open looks in transition when the plays are broken. In a half-court setting, for the most part, he needs to have plays run where he comes off of screens to, to get open to catch and shoot. He can catch and shoot on the move in those situations quite well. But because of his limitation as a creator of shots, he needs the offense to be orchestrated around him to get better looks. 
Now, in his defense, he is not forcing shots. But if we have a guy who's as efficient as he is shooting right around 50% on threes, he shouldn't be shooting 10 shots a game. This guy probably needs to be shooting closer to 15 shots a game. Trayvon Allen's been our leading shot taker. And that, since he's picked up his play in the last couple games, that hasn't been as big a problem as it was in our first two. His best game so far to me was against UC Santa Barbara, where he made six out of six shots in the first half, scored a total of 19. Now he cooled off in the second half, only shots about two of eight. But uh, Trayvon Allen was the guy moving our team against UCSB. He also looked a lot more comfortable against Northwest Nazarene the game before than he had earlier in the season against Northwest Nazarene. He scored 24 points on 10 of 18 shooting. But those are some of the numbers I, I want to have Cameron Tyson's box score look closer to where, you know, I don't have a problem with Allen getting up to 14 shots a game in a game. But Cameron Tyson is incredibly efficient right now. And if a guy get, has increased usage, you should expect that efficiency to go down a little bit. But he's averaging, averaging 17 points a game on 10 shots. We can afford to have his shooting percentage, his three-point percentage, go down to, let's say, 42% on threes if his usage goes up past the 80s he's taken a game. And still say, this is not just fine. It is great to have someone shooting like he can at volume. Because he is shooting a high percentage and he is shooting a high volume of threes now, I just think we need to have the offense orchestrated to get him more shots. It is freakish for a guy to average almost, he's averaging almost two points per field goal attempt. For a guy scoring as much as he is, that, do, that doesn't happen in big sky play. And it doesn't happen in big sky play because all, it happens in almost no levels of basketball unless the guy is an elite athlete who's scoring on dunks the way you'd expect a LeBron James to if he had played college. Cameron Tyson's not that athlete, but he is one of the best shooters I've ever seen. He's certainly the best shooter I've ever seen at the University of Idaho. And I hope that one of our fixes is finding ways to get him more shots. The other thing that or we need to be able to fix that is a problem right now is our control of the basketball. Trayvon Allen is doing a good job of not turning the ball over, even as an aggressor on offense. His assist-to-turnover ratio is around 3-1. to one. But he's also not really functioning as a point guard, which is probably in his best interest, because he's a better player when he gets to attack. But our other players functioning as point guards, the kind of guys that you need to be able to orchestrate an offense like I'm referencing, where we strategically want one player to be getting more shots when that guy is not a shot creator. That player either needs the the offensive system to be slow and a little more pragmatic, or he needs to have dynamic guard play that can generate him open shots by penetrating and drawing in defense. And we don't appear to have that right now. Gino West, who is a strong shooter, certainly is, has not shown that he can be that type of player who can penetrate and draw attention to shout. Xavier Smith has looked like he could be that guy, but Xavier Smith right now has a negative assist to turnover ratio, which is part of why his minutes have not grown as much as at times I feel like it would make sense for them to. But from Coach Berlin's perspective, 
if your lead guard is turning the ball to over too much, which Xavier Smith is, you can't trust that guy to be your lead guard for 30 minutes a game. In our next few games, we're going to be able to see if we can turn some of those problems into growing pains, which is to say find a way to fix them and then we just need to practice and execute, or whether those problems will remain problems. Our upcoming schedule between now and Christmas is a lot harder than our first six games because we don't have NAIA schools or NCCAA schools for the remainder of the season. On December 1st, which is a Saturday, we play at North Dakota at 1 p.m. On December 5th, which is Wednesday, we play at Washington State at 6 p.m. Last season, our game against Washington State, which was in Moscow, was our best attended game for, for a handful of years. We had around 4,300 people there. The gym was at around 85% capacity. We won by 30. It was broadcast locally on SWX and on Pluto. And it was just an overall fun game. WSU is looking much stronger than any team we've beaten so far. I think that could be a fun game if we can show for two halves. Game after that is December 8th, which is Saturday. We play CSU Bakersfield in Memorial Gym. A week after we play, which is December 15th, we play Nebraska Omaha in Cowan Spectrum. And from December 15th on, our games at home are scheduled in Cowan Spectrum. And then our last game for Christmas is Friday, December 21st. We play Santa Clara at 7 p.m. Now, the Go Vandals website did not specify all of those games as to whether they'd be televised. I've had success with Pluto TV for all the games, but some of the games may have maybe carried on ESPN or other affiliate networks based off of conference contracts. And to end the segment, we had a hashtag AskTATC a couple weeks ago from Chris. Chris asked me who my top five players of the Don Verlin era in Moscow are, and to put them in order if I could. Now, I... It's really hard for me to pick five, partially because some of the teams that have been solid didn't necessarily have a single guy who stood out as much as we had a handful. Uh, But my favorite guy we've had so far, um, I'd say number one is Victor Sanders. He made second team All-Big Sky his senior year. I believe he was first team All-Big Sky his first year. It was fun watching him play for four years, starting as a a player off the bench who was essentially just a catch-and-shoot player, kind of like a not-as-good Cameron Tyson as a freshman. And through injuries and through just Victor being a committed player, he developed both a very strong off-the-dribble game and became a very good finisher. He, he He wasn't a guy who dunked in games all the time. His finishing was layups. But he improved from a catch-and-shoot player on offense to a guy who could score in just about any way you can think of. My second favorite player is a graduate assistant on team right now, Steven Madison. Steven Madison was a wing uh, kind of combo forward, and then he was a, he's about 6'7", six, 6'8". Six, so he, he was the height in which he could get away with playing four, but he, became, he had some of the skills of a three. Part of what was fun about him, this was another thing about watching a guy for four years, the first time I saw him play, He was a freshman against the University of Montana. And I remember the one thing I took away from that game is I had no idea how the hell that guy had a basketball scholarship because he didn't look like he could do anything 
on the floor other than catch, shoot, and hopefully not turn the ball over. By the time he was a junior and senior, I don't know if I've ever seen anyone improve more over the course of two or three years than Steven Madison. I might be floored if I ever see anyone improve more than he did over three or four years. You know, he became a guy who could, he was a good shooter. He was a strong scorer off the dribble. He could score some in the post, although his post game wasn't what you'd call his primary weapon on offense. But he was another guy who was just fun to watch. Uh, number three, I'd say Kyle Barone. Barone is a little bit lower on the list probably than he should. He was whack player of the year as a senior on Don Verlin's worst team since Verlin was head coach of Idaho where they only won 12 games. It's astounding that a guy could be MVP on a team that finished only 12 games, but that was how good how good Kyle Barone was. Um, you now, he does have a few points knocked against him for me because when I played basketball, I was a guard, so I always identify with guards. And Kyle Barone was a post, which is just less exciting to watch back to the basket play. But Barone was obviously good, and he was he was good as a contributing player on the first what he wasn't the first on the second season Berlin was there back when Mac Hobson was on the team um and those first two years when Verlin w- came in those were when we made a pretty big jump from being just wretched winning 16 games across 3 years to winning 17 games his first year my number 4 player would be Mac Hobson who in some way is number 1 in my heart he played at North Idaho College as a freshman transferred up to Washington State. That was back during the Tony Bennett days and the Derek Lowe days at Washington State when Washington State was ranked top 15, made the NCAA tournament. Um, Mac Hobson was on that team, played a little bit as a sophomore. Didn't I don't know exactly why he chose to transfer. I don't know if it was a minutes thing. I don't know if it was a style of play. I certainly would struggle playing on a Tony Bennett team offensively with how slow the pace is. Uh, Mac Hobson transferred over to Moscow, made first team all whack as a junior after sitting out a year, was third team all whack as a senior. And part of what was exciting about his, his team when they transferred over is that was when we made a huge jump. We went from being just embarrassing to having a winning record in in whack play. We lost the first round of the whack tournament that year, which was disappointing, and that's a part of the Verlin legacy will probably have to talk about on the podcast at some point. But Mac Hobson was a dynamic guard. He was more of a jack of all trades, master of none as a guard in that he was a solid shooter, not an elite shooter. He was a good penetrator and good scorer, uh, but he didn't have elite speed, which is why he didn't play in the NBA. But he was a guy who had, again, an overall game that was fun. And he was part of what I think of as a re- the rebirth of Idaho basketball. And a lot of that, a lot of the credit goes to Don Verlin, of course, for the triage job he had to do in recruiting transfers for that team. Um, but, you know, Mac Hobson was the big transfer that worked out. The number five player, this is where it's hard for me to pick one. The 2014-2015 team, which only won 13 games, was in some ways my favorite Don Verlin team. It was the only Verlin team that played a real fast pace. The big sky was... Uh, had two teams that year that looked like they could make some noise in the NCAA tournaments if they made it. Eastern Washington ultimately made it that year uh, with Tyler Harvey leading the nation in scoring. Um, that season, we lost in the first round of the Big Sky Tournament, but one, it was a close game, and we lost because Tyler Harvey lit us up for a Big Sky record. It was, it was about 45 points in the game. Had he not had an extremely good game, 
or for the Big Sky Tournament, a historically good game, Idaho definitely could have won that game. That roster had a handful of guys that were fun. The names that stand out are Connor Hill from Post Falls, Mike Scott. He was a junior college transfer. Mike Scott is one of the guys still playing pro ball for Idaho. Connor Hill is a catch-and-shoot player. Um, he He's the guy who holds some of the records for three-pointers made that Cameron Tyson is going to break. Mike Scott was uh, kind of a better shooting version of Mac Hobson, who was probably not quite as solid a penetrator, but just a steady player. And those teams, even though that year we only won 13 games and it was maddening how mercurial our performance was, those were two of the guys who are most fun to watch, and those are two of the guys I identify when I think of, of that of that year, which to me, again, was one of the more fun years to watch, even though it was a little disappointing. That's all for the update now. Send in your hashtag AskTATC basketball questions. And next week, in addition to the basketball team update, I have a review of some national news the Big Sky Conference received from Jeff Goodman, where he ranks Big Sky programs. I'll go over how Idaho fared in that ranking and whether I think it was fair or whether I think there are some things he missed. See you next time.